0: Okay, we're gonna get right back into Daniel. So we're at Daniel part six, but we're in Daniel chapter five. Take out your smartphones, your tablets, your PCs, whatever you got here with you to get to the Bible, and maybe you're old fashioned and you got a paper Bible, that's, that's just as good. <laughs> Actually, some people would say that's better. Uh, I always encourage you to bring your Bibles and underline and circle and make notes in your margins, and and then take out your note pages and follow along with us. We're in Daniel chapter five, like I said, and we're going to look at something I'm going to call the point of no return. The point of no return. So uh, we've been in Daniel for about a month and a half now, and we've realized that, or we've seen that this nation named Babylon has come in and has been an instrument of judgment on God's people. God allowed it. God made it happen. Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 talks about this, that God used the nation of Babylon to judge his nation. And it's been 70 years and now Babylon has also done its own thing and walked away from God and been rebellious and proud and arrogant. And now God's gonna bring judgment on Babylon. And so here's where we are. We're at that point where this powerful, world-dominating nation is going to come to a colossal collapse. Seventy years are up, and God is going to rearrange things because he reigns over all nations. So it's bad news for Babylon, Daniel chapter five. I wanna give you some contextual information so that you understand what's exactly happening here in this chapter before we read. Uh, first off, you need to know that there's been, it's been 30 years since the events of Daniel 4. So last week, Justin preached on Nebuchadnezzar, how God humbled him, and then he repented, and he came back, and God blessed him. And Nebuchadnezzar was, you know, he worshiped the God of Israel. Uh, So it's been 30 years since that time. Sometimes we read the Bible one chapter to the next, we think it just happened right on top of each other. That's not always the case. 30 years later, Daniel chapter 5 starts. Uh, It's uh, been 22 years since Nebuchadnezzar has died. So Nebuchadnezzar is out of the picture. His son was named Nabodidus. Nabodidus took the, took the throne, and then he had a son. His son's name was Belshazzar. And then Belshazzar and Nabodidus actually reigned together. They were co-regents over the nation of Babylon when Babylon fell. I mentioned that because for a long time in this country, scientists and archeologists used Daniel chapter five to discredit the Bible. The reason why is because they could find no records of a king named Belshazzar who reigned over Babylon. In fact, they actually knew that the last king of of Babylon, Babylon was named Nabudidus. So for many, many decades... Professors in secular institutions and archaeologists and scientists said, see, you can't trust the Bible because the Bible just makes up names and you can't trust it. So, so see, how we, see how we know better than the Bible. And that's what happened. And then in 1980, they found a cuneiform tablet in the middle of the Arabian desert and it mentioned a guy named Belshazzar, who was the son and co-region of Babylon at the time of their collapse with his father Nebuchadnezzar. And then all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh, I guess the Bible was actually Right. And the point I'm trying to make is you can trust what's in this book. So that's where we're at. And Belshazzar is kind of like this little teeny bopper king. He's on the throne. And uh, Daniel's been banished. He's in the middle of nowhere right now. I don't know why. I'm going to suggest why later on in the message. But something else you need to know is that they're at war with the Persian army. The Persians, Daniel prophesied, would come in and, and take over after Babylon, in Daniel chapter 2. So they're at war, and they are losing this war. Listen to me. Ten days before the events of Daniel 5, just ten days earlier, Nabadinus, who was fighting the Persians on the, on the front lines, he lost a major military battle, and an entire Babylonian city was sacked. The Persians took it over. And they marched for the next 10 days, and they are literally, listen to me, at Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, they are at the gates of Babylon. They are crushing this nation. And this nation, which sat on top of the world, is, is on the pinnacle or is on the, is on the cli- crest of the cliff and is about to be pushed over any moment. And they just lost a major battle, a week and a half earlier and it doesn't look good and and Nebuchadnezzar the king is running for his life and here's Belshazzar on the throne and what does he do in the midst of all of that let's look at what it says the very first verse of the chapter king belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand that's what he does he's about to lose the kingdom He's about to be crushed, wiped off the face of the earth. What's he doing? Throwing a party. Not only that, but he calls a thousand of his lords, and every word of the scripture is important, and it says that he drinks wine in front of them. Why? Why is that mentioned? Because this was unheard of in ancient times. An ancient king never, ever, ever drank wine in front of other people, because he would get inebriated, a little bit topsy-turvy, and he would look unfit for for ruling so this was, this was against protocol. This was against tradition. Uh, Belshazzar just throws caution to the wind. And while his nation is on the verge of collapse, he is partying like it's 1999. <laughs> it doesn't look good. And I, I thought about Belshazzar having this, having this deal about drinking wine in front of all these people. He's kind of just showing off. You know what he reminds me of is those people that post pictures of their food on social media. Like what's up with that? In the words of Weird Al Yankovic, just eat it, (laughs) we don't wanna see it, just eat it. So he's drinking wine, he's partying. Verse two, then Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, this isn't on the screen, we want you to bring your Bibles. Then when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver and that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought in. Okay, so he takes the, the treasures of God's temple, the treasures of Israel, into the festival. And he parties with his wives and his concubines that they might drink from God's vessels. So they're desecrating the vessels of God. Verse four, they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. By the way, notice that there are six gods mentioned again. That's a recurring theme throughout Babylon, the number six. So this is total blasphemy. He has not just decided to party. He has not just decided to throw protocol to the the wind. He has not just decided to make himself look so important in front of all these thousands of people. He's actually got the nerve to take the vessels of God's house, serve up wines and toast to his foreign uh, uh, false gods and and, and worship those gods with the vessels from, from the Lord's house. This is total blasphemy. This is beyond the pale. And he's doing all this with the Persian army at the gates of the city. What kind of king does this? Was he insane? Was he out of touch with reality? Was he just a fool? Yeah, partly to all of those things, but but here's what I think. I think that Belshazzar was overconfident. And there is nothing more dangerous, nothing more fatal to your life than overconfidence. We are living in a generation of Belshazzars, man. A generation of people, and I'm talking specifically about America now. A generation of people that are so overly confident. And I know why we got to this point. I know why we're here. It's because we raised up a generation of kids where everybody got a trophy. Oh, you showed up. You showed up and when you throw the ball, it actually goes backwards. Here's a trophy. Yay, mediocrity. Yay, mediocrity. My kid's in the little league and I keep score. And I tell them, you lost. You guys stink. <laughs> Try harder. I mean, we got people taking pictures of their food. That's not the big problem. This is the other problem. You know what else they're doing? They're snapping pictures of themselves. What do we call them? Anybody know? Selfies. Selfies. Here I am looking awesome. <laughs> Snap. Filter, filter, filter. Post. I'm so cool. It's like, seriously? I mean, really, do you ever really pose like that in real life? <laughs> do you ever? <laughs> We're just like, but this is our culture. This is what's happened. We've just become so self absorbed. And social media is a big part of it. It really is. In fact, I saw something funny online yesterday. It was, it was actually in my Twitter feed. I do Twitter a little bit. And uh, I saw this guy put a post and said, How about for Halloween this year, you go as the person you pretend to be on Facebook? <laughs> Love that. <laughs> You ever notice the pop culture songs today? You know, pop culture, when I was growing up, they used to sing about someone else that they loved. Now they sing about themselves. Listen to the words. Pop culture song right now on the radio, let me be your ruler. I wanna be your ruler, I wanna be in charge of you. Belshazzar. Another pop culture song says you're perfect just the way you are. It's all about me, me, me. <laughs> it's amazing, it's amazing. This is the culture that we live in. They, they did a survey uh, in the 1950s of high school students. They asked them this question. Do you consider yourself a very important person? 12% said yes in the 1950s. They did the same survey a few years back You know what the number was? 80%. 80% of high school students said, I am a very important person. Guess what it is? Belshazzar. A Belshazzar generation. I shared this statistic a couple months ago. I'll share it again. But they did another study with teens. High school seniors were tested on their math proficiency in 17 countries. 17 of the world's leading countries were tested. America was one of them. And they tested them on their math proficiency and then they asked a question how did you feel about your performance in the test? Do you know that American students finished dead last in performance? But on how they felt about they how they felt about their performance? Number one. So we're not doing really great, but we're feeling really good about it. What is it? It's Belshazzar generation. The enemy is at the gates. And let me just say, it can't go on like this. It can't. Because there is nothing more detrimental or dangerous to your life and my life than overconfidence. I'm all for self-esteem. I'm all for self-image. But R.C. Sproul said it like this, and I love this quote. He said, the best self-image we can have is one that is accurate and true. To acknowledge that I am not all that. Most importantly, to acknowledge that I need a savior. His name is Jesus. Belshazzar is partying, and he's about to lose everything. And he's overconfident. Why? I want to give you a little bit more background information on this chapter. The city of Babylon uh, was a glorious ancient city. Ancient cities usually had one wall that went around the entire perimeter of their city to protect them from invading armies. Babylon had two. Two massive walls surrounding their city. And they weren't just regular old walls, like you see the Great Wall of China. No, nothing like that. These walls were 25 feet thick and 45 feet up in the air. It's like having Route 95 40 feet up in the air and surrounding this town. And think about it, this is not in the days of airstrikes or missiles or F-16s. This is as, as protected of a, of a society as you could get in those days. No wonder why he's so overconfident. No wonder why he's partying when his army's losing battles outside the walls. He was convinced that though there's trouble out there, it'll never get in here. You know what the Persians did? The wall Underneath the wall of the city flowed The Euphrates River. It flowed under the wall, into the city, and out of the city. That's why they felt they could never be toppled, because they had water supply that just came in and went out, and they could constantly feed themselves. The Persians went up river, and they dammed up the river and redirected the water. And that riverbed dried up. They walked right underneath those two massive walls, right into the city of Babylon, and ended Babylon's reign. Overconfidence is dangerous to your existence. If you're taking notes, I have another word for overconfidence. Here it is, pride. So here we are two weeks in a row on the the topic of pride. Say, pastor, is that necessary? Evidently, because it's back-to-back chapters in Daniel. Pride is dangerous, man. Last week, Justin shared about how Nebuchadnezzar was puffed up with pride. God humbled him, and he repented and humbled himself. And God, in his grace, actually made him greater after he humbled himself than he was before. But this chapter is a different story. Belshazzar is not going to humble himself. And Belshazzar is going to stiffen his neck, and Belshazzar is going to do his own thing. and He's not going to get another chance. Number one, if you're taking notes, here's the problem with pride. Pride is blinding. Pride is blinding. It's just like walking with blinders over your eyes. You know, the Bible says this. It was shared last week. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It doesn't say, we say pride goes before a fall. It doesn't say that. It says pride goes before destruction. If we knew it was coming, we would never have gone in that direction. But that's the problem with pride. Pride is blinding. You know the, real number pro- the, the, the big problem with preaching a message on pride is that most people who hear a message on pride um, don't think they struggle with pride. They'll come to church and say, I'm so glad that my wife was here. She needed to hear this message on pride. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to see it in somebody else? Oh, that guy, he's just arrogant. Oh, that dude, he's just a jerk. She's so full of herself. It is so easy. We got got 20-20 vision when it comes to the pride in others. But pride is hard to see in me. You see, pride is not like other sins. Pride is not like other sins. Other sins, you commit it, you know you're committing it. It's not like with adultery. You commit adultery. You're not like, what the heck? You're not my wife. That never happens. You know, (laughs) right? But this is the subtlety of pride. Undetectable sometimes. That's what makes it so hard to preach. That's why probably we needed to hear two weeks in a row on this issue of pride. You throwing your parties, having your having your guys all around you, is your life all about you, are you full of you? I just love me some me. Right. So what happens at Belshazzar's party, verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the landstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, then the king's Color changed. Look at this. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly. In the Hebrew, the word could be translated, he shrieked. (laughs) This is the king of the world. And he's like, ah! He called loudly to the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and declared to the wise men, whoever reads this writing and shows me interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And the king was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. You know, Daniel gives us some of the great lines of culture. This is one of them. When we say, whenever somebody says, we're seeing this handwriting on the wall, they're referencing Daniel chapter 5. And he doesn't know what to do, and the, king, the queen comes along, and, and this might have been Nebuchadnezzar's uh, widow, the queen mother. And she said, and it says in verse 10, because of the king's words and, and the Lord's, uh, she came into the banqu- banqueting hall and said, King, live forever. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your color changed. there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light, understanding, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the eunuchs and the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. And because an excellent spirit was found in him, knowledge and understanding were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Where has Daniel been? Why do they need to call him in again? He was at the right-hand side of Nebuchadnezzar last time we saw. He's been banished. For 10 years, Daniel has been out of the picture. Why? Here's why, I I think. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 are two prophecies that Daniel shares. And they are prophecies given to him during the reign of Belshazzar. And they are both prophecies on the decline and demise of the Babylonians to the Persian Empire. Both of them are. So I think the Belshazzar hears what Daniel's saying about his kingdom, and instead of listening and repenting, he just pushed him out of the picture. He just said, I don't like that preacher. You can get that preacher. Just keep that one away from me. I like these guys over here who tell me about money and how good I am and how nothing's going to stop me. And isn't that just the way that we live sometimes? I didn't like that message. That message really wasn't for me. No, 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 no. That message was from my, my, my friend or my brother or my uncle. I'm so glad they were here. No, 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 no. It's for you. All God's words are for all God's people. And here's what happens. They call in Belshazzar. I mean, they call in Daniel. By the way, Daniel is 82 years old at this time. He came to Babylon as a teenager and he stayed true right into his old age. I don't know about you, but I want that to be the testimony of my life. That's called consistency. And there's gonna be times in your life when you're in your 20s and everything seems like, I'm untouchable. Man, keep your head, keep your knees bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ every chance you can. That, 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 listen to me, anybody can be committed to Jesus for three years. Anybody can do that. Anybody can walk with God for four or five years. But man, it takes a Daniel spirit to be able to stay strong well into your old age. No matter what regime changes happen in the culture, no matter what the president or the Congress does, no matter what the culture says, I'm going with Jesus Christ. That takes a Daniel spirit, and he's totally this is what I love about Daniel. He's consistent. Ought to have that kind of consistency. Verse 18. Oh king, this is what I love about Daniel. He just gives it to him straight. Oh king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, people trembled and feared him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he kept alive, he kept alive. Whom he would raise up, he raised up. And who he would, he humbled So basically, Daniel's giving a recap of chapter four, saying, don't you remember this? This is what happened to your grandfather. In verse 22, he just kind of like brings it home now. And you, King Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. It's as if Daniel's saying, don't you remember what happened? You were there. And I know you know because remember in Daniel chapter 4 that this was written down by Nebuchadnezzar and sent to every nation so nobody is without excuse. You above all people because you're his grandson. You saw what God did. He saw your grandfather lose his mind, go out to the fields and eat and then humble himself and come back to God. You saw it. And instead of listening and instead of repenting and instead of turning your heart toward God, here's what he says, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone and do, which do not see or hear or know but God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. This is are you worship everything else. You worship success. You worship money. You worship sports. You worship the opposite sex, you worship people, you worship celebrities, but the God who holds his breath in your hand, you have ignored. And you are not with excuse because this happened to your grandfather and it was a message for you and you ignored it. It Stiffened your neck. By the way, do you know that the Bible expects us to learn from the mistakes of other people? I don't know about you, but I'd rather learn that way. I'd rather learn from your dumb mistakes than mine. You know, the Bible says actually in 1 Corinthians 10.6, 10, it says these things, these things, what things? The things in the Old Testament happened as a warning to us. The Bible's full of blessings, the Bible's full of commendations, the Bible's full of edification, but the Bible is also full of warnings. And he says, these happen as warnings to us that we should not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and then they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual morality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites and do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the death the angel of death. These things happen as examples for us. They were written down to warn us. God expects us to learn from the mistakes of other people. Just in case you're one of those people who said, I don't, I, don't, I don't have to worry about this. I got this. I got this. I'm, I, I don't have to worry. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. One who thinks he's got it going on, watch out. This is the second problem with pride. If you're taking notes, pride is not just blinding, pride is deafening. It'll shut your ears to the voice of truth. I am amazed at how many times we'll see somebody get saved. And I've been a Christian a long time and i watch watched this happen. They grow in Christ and they're powerful for Christ and they're used mightily by Christ, but they cross some kind of invisible line and nobody can tell them anything. I've been there before, I've done that. I got the certificate. I know what I'm talking about. And they're unteachable, dangerous, man. It's it's not maturity, friend, it's called pride. And it's deafening. You know, Cheryl and I, we, we love Those shows where they fix up the restaurants. Uh, They're called Kitchen Nightmares and uh, Restaurant Impossible. Anybody like those shows? I love those. Oh, good, good, good. I love those shows. (laughs) Because they're so funny. These guys, every single episode is the same. So I'm going to give you the synopsis and you'll never have to watch the show. All right. The guy comes from England, you know, Gordon Ramsay, Robert Irvine, they come in failing restaurant and the owner's interviewed and every owner the same story. We got three months and then we're closed. We got three months and then we're closed, every single episode. And then they come in, these English guys, I don't know why we always have to have the English come in and fix us, but we do. And they come in, and it's so funny because they just nail them to the wall for the first 30 minutes. And they're like, your food is terrible. Your service is terrible. There's mold all over the building. You stink as an owner. You're tired. You've given up. You suck. You know, it's like just totally nailing them, right? And it's so funny because they have them taste the food. And the owner is interviewed right before the tasting. Every owner says the same thing. He said, oh, I know that Gordon's going to love our food. Oh, I know that Robert's going to love our food. Our food's good. It's not food that's the problem. And all of a sudden, Sean and I always turn to each other. And we look at each other like, don't you watch the show? Because you called them to come fix you, and he's never, ever liked the food. He's an expert. You're a moron. And it's like he tastes the food, and he's like, this is And he says it with the English accent, which is cool. This is garbage. And and it's just like (laughs) disgusting, total garbage that you're feeding these people. No wonder why you're failing. And amazingly enough, they interview the owner afterwards, and they have the audacity to say, I just don't agree. (sighs) Pride is deafening. And here... And you can't learn when you're filled with pride. Let me tell you something about Jesus, all right? Jesus is the Gordon Ramsay on how to do life. (laughs) Nobody knows how to do it better than him. And if you think you do, you're dead wrong because he is not just a moral example that we should follow. He's not just a religious reformer. He's not just a religious founder. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. There is no life outside of Jesus. He doesn't just know how to do it, he is it. (laughs) That's That's what I love about Jesus. But pride, man, it, it'll keep you from listening. Oh, I've heard this before, Pastor. I, I've been to many churches before Waters Church. I know what I'm doing. I've been around. Right. Verse 24, then Daniel says, From his presence, God has sent his hand, and his writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel parsen. This is the interpretation, and he says, Many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Okay, by the way, that's true for everybody here. Your days are numbered. And it has been fixed in heaven. It has been fixed in heaven how many days you get and how many days I get. It says your days are numbered. And then verse 27, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. That's That's another cultural pop phrase that we say, weighed and found wanting. What he's saying is here's, here's righteous standard and here's you, Belshazzar, boom. There's nothing there. You know, that's the case for all of us. We're all put on the scales of God. The Bible says that we're all going to stand before the judgment of Christ. And everybody outside of Christ, listen to me very carefully. Outside of Jesus, this is what your scale looks like. Jesus is perfect, and he is the standard by which God will measure every single person. Don't tell me you just never killed anybody, and don't tell me you just never committed adultery, because we're talking about every foul thought, every foul word, every misspoken deed, everything that you have done in your life that is outside of Jesus weighs against you. This is your scale. But this is the amazing thing about the gospel. The gospel doesn't say, okay, try hard. The gospel doesn't say, okay, self-improve now. Come on. You can do better. No, no, no. The Bible says, you can't. See, before we realize that the gospel is good news, we gotta realize that the gospel is bad news. And the bad news is you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. It's not, you're pretty good. It's not, I'm doing my best. It's not, I just need a couple of things to change and I'll really be good enough, no. No, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. And even if you didn't commit them, Jesus said, if you think them, that's also sin. And so here's our scale. And the gospel becomes good news because here's what Jesus did. Here's what God did at the cross. He took the righteousness of Jesus And he put it on your side of the scale and makes you righteous by grace through faith. This is the the gospel, man. You may not have heard this, you've been in church all your life, but that's the gospel. And you've got to accept it. You see, if you don't accept it, that's a problem. (laughs) You got to accept that it's by his grace. And the third thing that Daniel says, verse 28, Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. I want you to notice the finality of Daniel's words. This is not Daniel chapter four. This is not, hey, repent and it'll be okay. This is not, hey, uh, Belshazzar, God's trying to speak to you. Come on, come on, come on, come on. All right, now, repent, let's go. We can turn this thing around. No, 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 this is the point of no return, it's over, time's up. Pride is blinding, pride is deafening, but number three, the most dangerous thing about it is pride is terminal. We hear about terminal cancer, we hear about terminal heart disease. Let me say it this way, there's a terminal spiritual condition and it's called pride. It'll kill you. Belshazzar, no more chances. And just so we know, this is biblical. That's what Daniel chapter 5 introduces us to. There is a point of no return. Proverbs 29 verse 1. One of the scariest verses in the Bible to me. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. There's a point of no return. Some of you here today, You've you've heard it. 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 And every week it's the same thing. I'll go, I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna do better, I know it, and three days go by and you watch enough TV and you listen to enough secular friends and you're back to your nonsense. And it's like, stop it. You are getting reproved by the grace of God. Don't stiffen your neck and waver between two opinions anymore. It's time to humble yourself before God and say, I'm done doing life on my terms. If you keep stiffening your neck, let me tell you something. This is a warning. At some point, there'll be a breaking. And notice the scripture says, beyond healing. Just so you know, it's a New Testament principle too. Hebrews chapter 3 says, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. As I swore in my wrath, God says, they shall not enter my rest. Jeremiah 7, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called, you did not answer. Therefore, I will cast you out of my sight. I look at our country and I say, man, this is where we are. Abelshahs is our generation. And we're losing it, we don't even realize it. And we're playing with the things of God. We're messing with marriage. We're saying, no, God's wrong about that. It can be two men. It can be two women. We're messing with that stuff. We're messing with life. Who can die? We'll say when they can die. We'll say when it's a life. Never mind what God says. We'll say. If you're a Christian today and you try to stand up for Jesus, they call you a bigot, intolerant, and judgmental. The Belshazzar generation. And this has crept, unfortunately, into the hearts of the church sometimes. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm good. Me and God, we had a conversation. We're good. Oh, really? Here's what happens to Belshazzar. Then then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was given all these meaningless accolades because it was coming to an end in just a few moments. Here's what happens in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, sometimes we read the Bible and we think, oh, you know, Sunday school story. This happened. I believe the whole, all the Bible happened, but, but this one, this moment, this is recorded in secular history books. We know the date. October 12th, 539 BC, is the day that, Nebuchadnezzar, that Belshazzar was killed by the Persians and Babylon went into history. That's the date we know. Now, let me tell you about a date we don't know. It's the date that Jesus Christ comes back. And nobody knows that date. Please listen to me, because every 10 years or so, some nutcase says that it's gonna happen on May 22nd, 2000, whatever. They are wrong. Jesus said you don't know. And it's going to happen like that. And, 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 and we we got to be ready. <laughs> he said, blessed are the servants whom the master finds ready. They will come in and eat with him and rejoice together. We don't know the date. Here's how Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5. And I want you to notice the similarities, the similar statements of Daniel 5, And 1 Thessalonians 5, here's what he says. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security. While people are saying, you got plenty of time. You got plenty of time. Maybe that's some of you here today. I got time. I hear what you're saying, preacher, but I got some things I want to do. And then, and then later afterwards, I'll come back. Don't worry. How do you know? How much time? While people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as a labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Verse 6 So then let us not sleep. As others do, But let us keep awake and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. That's what Belshazzar was doing, getting drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Who died for us so that whether we live or whether we sleep, we might live with Don't harden your